Well, last week, I introduced our series on the helmet of salvation, and we explored the question, who am I? And I talked about how you and I are made in the image of God, Imago Dei, but that our sin distorts that reflection of God through our lives. And I concluded that in spite of all of our best efforts, we can't stop sinning, and that it requires Jesus in our life. So that was last week, who am I? This morning, I'd like us to consider a second question as it relates to the helmet of salvation. And it's this. Where are you? Where are you? If you've ever played hide and seek or you can't find someone, you've likely asked the same question. Where are you? Maybe you've texted it to somebody as you've been waiting for them to show up. Where are you? Or if you came to church this morning and there was no music team or Sig or myself wasn't here to preach, you would likely call me and say, where are you? Now, typically this where are you question is often in relation to our physical or geographical location, isn't it? But what if the question, where are you, has less to do with our physical location and is more related to our spiritual location? Now, last week, we, t- we looked at David's sin with Bathsheba, and we recognized that although sin started with Adam and Eve, that you and I, we all contribute to our own distortion of the image of God that God created us with. When we look at Adam and Eve and their narrative, we see God in the garden look at, look, looking for Adam and Eve, calling out, <clears throat> asking the same question we are asking today in Genesis 3.9. Where are you? And Adam and Eve's response in verse 10 is this. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. One of our first responses is often, in the midst of our sin choices, is often to look for ways to hide. Where we see this immediate recognition or acknowledgement from Adam and Eve that the image they were designed to bear has now been affected by their own sin choices. Maybe they hid so they could hide from the shame of their nakedness. Maybe they hid so they could hide from the embarrassment of their disobedience. Maybe they hid out of fear of the consequences for their decisions. Ultimately, we see this willful, intentional decision from Adam and Eve to hide hide from God in the garden. They just can't help it. It's almost instinctual. They sin, and their first response is to run, hide. Now, the last couple of days here, we've had some pretty fantastic weather, with the exception of yesterday afternoon, while we were disc golfing. One of the great things about the nice warm weather, though, is it's perfect for snowball fights or making snowmen. I'm not going to throw this, but it's perfect, isn't it? You can make a nice snowball, and it's great. All of us are aware, though, that when you start to make a snowman, all it starts with just a small ball of snow. And in the right environment, all you need to do is just roll roll it along the ground in the snow, and it will stick to each other and gather more snow and get bigger and bigger until you've got this mound of snow. For Adam and Eve, the snowball of sin has begun to roll. And one sin choice leads to another, to another, to another. 
Until now, they, they no longer have a small ball. Now they've got this mountain. And it's just compounded one decision after another by, the, by trying to solve, resolve the problem themselves and hiding. And so they cover up their nakedness and hide from God, hoping just not to be exposed. What if, though, the real hiding that Adam and Eve was doing wasn't the hiding they were doing physically, but it was the hiding they were doing spiritually? The parallel to David's life in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is actually pretty similar. Where if you remember from last week, David sees Bathsheba bathing. And instead of putting on the helmet of salvation and living out the image that he was designed to bear, he instead chooses to have adulterous sex with her instead. And oh yeah, she's pregnant with his son. So even if David wanted to excuse this night as a heat of, heat of the moment, passion decision. The consequences for this night now are, 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 are unavoidable. The broken, the broken image that he had created was now very, very real, just like Adam and Eve. And David's first thought in the midst of, of trying to avoid being exposed in his sin is the same as Adam and Eve's. I'll just cover up. And that's where we find the majority of 2 Samuel chapter 11, David trying to hide. If you remember at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says as it was in the spring when all the, when all the, the nation's armies go off to war, but David stayed home. First thing David does is he invites Bathsheba's husband back to, to Jerusalem from the war. David and Uriah, Uriah is excited to be back home, excited, assuming that he gets to spend, spend some time by invitation to the king. David, however, has different plans. David has begun to, to has invited him into this, invited Uriah into this, into this um, environment where they, all, the, all, the, all of David's plan is to do is just to get Uriah drunk. So they spend a couple days partying together. Seemingly celebrating Uriah's return home. But this is all part of David's plan. See, the hope for David is that Uriah, after, after a night of partying, will go home to his wife. So that when she gives birth in nine months to David's child, Uriah will just simply assume that the child belongs to him. And the only people who will know the truth are David and Bathsheba. Now, unfortunately for David, plan A doesn't work. Uriah has too much character and decides, you know what, instead of, he recognizes that all of his, all of his war buddies, all of his, all of his other soldiers, they've, they've sacrificed so much, they're not, they don't get to spend time with their, their wives and their spouses. So he decides he's going to stay, home, stay in the temple with the rest of the servants instead. And so he's, he, he refuses to go home to visit his wife. So as a result, Uriah kind of forces David's hand here a bit. And David's now having to resort to plan B instead. So after a couple of days of partying with King David, David quickly realizes, well, this plan isn't going to work. And so instead, he, he tells Uriah, go back to the war. And this time, though, he sends Uriah with a letter addressed to Joab, the commander of the Israelite army, when he arrives. 
Now, what Uriah doesn't know is that when he hands this letter over to Joab, he's actually essentially handing over his own death sentence. See, this letter that from the king is informing Joab to reassign Uriah to the front lines of the battle, where David is hopeful that maybe plan B will work and that Uriah will be killed. And that the scandal of this one night of passion will once again be hidden. Unfortunately for David, he's now beginning to create this mountain of sin, one piece at a time. And these series of sin choices continue to grow and grow and grow, leaving him farther and farther and farther from the image that he was created to bear. While Adam and Eve use a much more primitive way of hiding themselves with fig leaves, David just uses conspiracy and, his, uh, and his, his kingly authority to cover up his own bad decision-making. And as a result, David becomes more and more relationally distant from, da- from God. Until God asks the same question to David that he asks Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends the prophet Nathan, and Nathan approaches David, and, and, Nathan, and Nathan gives this message from the Lord to David to personally just reflect on this. The parable is a simple way of, of asking this exact same question God asked Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? This is the parable that Nathan shares. There were two men in a city, the one wealthy and the one poor. The wealthy man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing at all except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nurtured. And it grew up together with him and his children. And it would eat scraps from him and drink from his cup and lie in his lap, and was like a daughter to him. Now a visitor came to the wealthy man, and he could not bring himself to take any animal from his flock or his own herd to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. So he took the poor man's ewe lamb instead and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now David, rightly so, immediately sees the injustice within this parable in verse 5 and says, says, well, it says that David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. (laughs) Nathan's response is so great. Oh, this is going to be an awkward conversation because that guy is you. And this is the beginning. This is the pivot point for David's game of spiritual hide-and-seek. Where this is the beginning of the end of this game of hide from God. And this rebuke from Nathan is God's way of calling out to David, Where are you? David, you're lost. You've slept with another man's wife. You've tried to hide it because you got pregnant. And you made one poor choice after another. You've, look at the snowball of sin that you have created. It's more like a mountain than just a snowball at this point, David. David, where are you, son? And it's in this moment that David can either answer honestly about where he's at relationally with God, or he can just continue to add more snow of sin onto the mountain. When I was 14 years old, 
my brother and I, we were visiting my grandparents, and my younger, my younger brother and I uh, were driving around on, on, on a dirt bike. My brother had never driven one before, so I was sitting behind him just to help him out. We were both wearing helmets, and, and, uh, and we hit this bump, and my brother's, because the helmet was really big, and my brother's head is really big, um, that he, he, we hit a bump, and his, and his head flung backwards, a kind of whiplash, and the helmet bashed me right in the teeth. And, it's, and it broke one of my, my front tooth right here. It broke it in half. Since then, I, I got it repaired multiple times. And I think the last time that I had it repaired uh, was when I was about 20 years old. Until five years ago, when I was, my family and I, we were on our way to, to Vancouver Island. It was the first day of my sabbatical. And we were crossing the ferry, and we had just had a long day of driving. And, and I was like, I just need something to eat. And so I bought a poppy seed muffin. As I was eating it on the ferry ride, all of a sudden I heard this tremendous crunch. And I realized that somehow the muffin had broken my tooth. And, and so now I, my, all my teeth were fine except for this one. I had like this gaping hole in my smile. Now at this point, I was faced with a decision. I could ignore the situation that was now very much real in my face. The tooth was gone. There, was, there wasn't much I could do about that at this point. I guess I could get some, maybe some duct tape or some crazy glue and try to jam it back in there. Ultimately, though, I, was wrestle, I had to wrestle with, how do I address this current situation in my face? And I could have looked in the mirror and seen this broken tooth and concluded, you know what, there's no problem. I still look pretty good. Seemed kind of foolishness to me. Or... I could call up the only person that could resolve this problem for me and restore this brokenness. Up until this rebuke from Nathan, David had been trying to resolve the problem himself and restore his brokenness alone. But it's in this question, where are you, that God actually begins to invite David into a relationship. But not just into a relationship. David, God actually invites David into a partnership with God. Where they might actually begin to write David's salvation story together. You see, one of the fundamental characteristics of God's character is his relational nature. It's in this relational nature that God invites you and I into this unique partnership as it relates to our own salvation story, just like with David. Ultimately, we know that God does the heavy lifting when it comes to Him saving us. His death and resurrection happen because we, you and I are unable to bear the full consequences of the mountain of sin that we have created. However, God does invite us into elements that I think reflect His relational nature and invite you and I into our own salvation narrative. You see, God doesn't act on the salvation process in isolation. But instead, he invites us into a partnership with him that could restore us into wholeness, the way we were meant to be. Let me say that again. God doesn't act on the salvation process in isolation. But instead, he invites you and I into a partnership with him that could restore us into wholeness the way we were intended to, to bear the image that we were created to, to bear. The question, where are you, is God's invitation into that partnership. And just like with Adam and Eve and with David, it's a question of intimacy. Where are you? 
and perhaps for us this morning. The invitation question, where are you, might lead to some of our own personal self-reflection as it relates to intimacy with Jesus. The question, where are you, is an invitation to being rediscovered and restored. Where we can honestly and genuinely acknowledge our role within our own sin choices. When we can truthfully admit the ways that we have distorted that image. As we do that, there's freedom in that. As we acknowledge those things, we're choosing to accept the invitation that Jesus extends to us to be restored to the image that we were designed to bear. The Bible calls that sort of acknowledgement confession. Confession is one minor but important and necessary piece to our role within our own salvation story. Where we begin to acknowledge that we, you and I, have contributed to the distortion of God's image inside of us. Now, admittedly, there's some Christian traditions that do this really well, and there's others that don't. I think confession is one of the most uncomfortable expressions of the Christian disciplines. Because it forces you and I to answer the question we are asking today. Where are you? And it's hard for us sometimes to admit that maybe we are farther down a path than we want to be. Or that the snow mountain that we have created is much larger than we care to admit. Ultimately, confession requires a level of vulnerability that most people aren't actually that comfortable with. As I think Adam and Eve and David demonstrate for us, where we just look for places to hide. But what if we viewed confession as a way of accepting God's invitation for salvation instead of a punishment for our choices? Let me say that again. What if we viewed confession as a way of accepting our role, sorry, what if we viewed confession as a way of accepting God's invitation for salvation instead of a punishment for our choices? See, confession is, is, an, is an acceptance of the invitation for us to accept that we had a role in damaging, distorting the image that we were designed to bear. Confession becomes a first step for us into the restoration process that God invites you and I into. Confession is how you and I answer that question, where am I? Where we begin the process of admitting, acknowledging, and accepting how our attitudes and our actions and our thoughts have disrupted that image that we are called to bear. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, Nathan says, You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now in the following verse, we see David's confession where he admits and acknowledges and accepts responsibility for the ways that he has damaged the image he was created to bear. And he says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. So where are you today? Where are you today? Where are you spiritually? Where are you in relationship with Jesus? Jesus is inviting each of us back. Just like the prodigal son in Luke 15. If you remember, the son had this really well-rehearsed confession prepared for his dad as soon as he got home. And he's like, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as, just as one of your hired laborers. 
But as he's walking down the road, and as soon as the dad sees his son coming towards him, dad just sprints out to him. And before the son can confess, the father just interrupts him and just hugs him, welcomes him, greets him, puts on the signet ring, and just receives him back. And it's this beautiful picture of relational restoration that's occurred where the father's reaction is just filled with this deep love and compassion and grace for his son. He's like, I don't care about the mountain that you built. I love you too much to have you apart from me. That's God's response to us when we return to him. He's, There's consequences to our sin, absolutely. Jesus carried that. He carried us so that we wouldn't have to, so that we could be together with him. Here's the thing, though. In the midst of the son's confession, in the midst of David's confession, in the midst of Adam and Eve's answer to the where are you invitation, the other half of the, the, the coin, the piece that's important and necessary part of our role within our own salvation story, is a commitment to changed behavior. A changed mindset from the old way of life, the, the way that brought us to here. That we're no longer going to continue to, to heap stuff onto here and continue to add more onto the, onto the pile. It's a commitment to walking away from a life saying, I'm no longer going to, I'm no longer going to have that, pursue that way of living anymore. That life has led to, to a brokenness, distracted, distant relationship that we are walking away from. If confession is one side of the coin when it comes to our contribution to our salvation partnership, repentance is the other. Repentance in the Greek just simply means to change your mind. In the Greek, the word metaneo. That word actually would have been fairly common within the secular world in the first century. They would have said things like, I was going to go to Ikea, but I repented or changed my mind and got a root canal instead. It's this idea of changing our mind. Repentance is more than just behavior modification, though. It's actually a a willful heart and mind transformation that comes from the sorrow that our actions have caused. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The word sorrow in the Greek in this passage is the word lupe. And sometimes we think of sorrow as maybe just feeling ashamed or disappointed in ourselves for something that we've done, how we've, how we've just continued to make the same choice and we just feel bad about it. Maybe we feel embarrassed because we got caught like Adam and Eve felt. But a more accurate picture of that word lupe that Paul is talking about here, is this idea of mourning. If you've ever mourned the loss of somebody, that's what he's talking about here. In this particular case, it's the loss of our original image where we actually are grieved, where we're mourning the, the way that it once was, the way that it's, it's no longer that way anymore because of something that I've done or you've done, we've done. The beautiful image that that we were created to bear is distorted. It's broken because of something that we've done and and we're grieved because of it. Maybe for us, we feel the pain and emptiness of the intimacy that was lost because of something that we did. 
That's what drives us to repentance. That's what drives us to, to, to a heart and mind change. Where we change our mind from the priorities of this world and the priorities of what you and I think our image should be. And instead remember and embrace the answer to the question we explored last week. Who am I? And living that out as bearers of God's image. Repentance is where we begin to prioritize, reprioritize how we think and how we love one another, how we steward our lives as we actively and intentionally pursue Imago Day in our lives. So where does repentance start? Because it's not just becoming more determined to sin less. It's not just having a willingly willing ourselves to make better choices. I'm just going to be a more holy person. Because I just talked about that last week, and most of us, I think, know that it doesn't work that way. In fact, the second half of that verse that I read from 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that, that worldly sorrow, when we just try to do it ourselves, that just leads to death. Repentance is about looking forward on a new path. I'm going to go this way. Go, I was going this way. Now I'm going to go the opposite direction because I know that this way leads to death. This way is going to lead to life. It's, having, it's about having a new heart posture focused on being an image bearer of God rather than being an image of ourselves or what we think we should be. It's a posture of partnership with Jesus rather than a posture of isolation. It's a posture of life because we know if we walk this way by ourselves, it's just going to lead to spiritual death. It's just adding more snow to the pile. It's interesting in the last two weeks, the topic of death has come up in both sermons, whether it's been myself preaching or Sig. And again, in my preparation for this message, that, that I, I concept again, I was reminded again that, that repentance is an expression of dying to ourselves, where we choose no longer to embrace or pursue a way of life that disrupts that image, but instead we, we die to that old way of life. We put it away and say, let's bury that. We die to it and choose a different mindset in a different way. And I'm going to talk more about that next week. When we ask the question, what's next? Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, in the same way that I can go to the dentist and point out my broken tooth, in the same way that I have some level of responsibility for my own care for my tooth, make sure I don't break it, ultimately it's the dentist who needs to repair it. I have some piece to play, but it's pretty minor. Ultimately, it's the dentist who I am depending on to restore it to the way it needs to be. Spiritually, it's our confession where we point out our own brokenness, and we recognize that that question, where are we? Confession says, I'm not where I want to be. It's in our repentance where we recognize that the reason we are, the reason we are where we are isn't because of Jesus, it's because we've put ourselves there. So this morning, where are you? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. If you want to grab your communion cup, 
you haven't grabbed one, they're just in the foyer, but you can start peeling the, the layers of that off. It's a little bit of a chore, I know. Communion, though, is an opportunity to answer that invitation question. Where are you? It's an opportunity for you to confess what's going on in your life. And it may not be big dramatic things. Maybe you don't have the giant mountain that you've been dealing with. Maybe it's just like, you know, a couple of things that you just need to, you just need to address. But it's there. And it may not be big dramatic things like we see with David. But maybe it's things like resentment or fear or bitterness, or self-sufficiency, or selfishness, consumerism. Maybe it's just personal comfort. This morning, let's receive communion as a reminder that God is asking that question, where are you today? This is an opportunity to accept the invitation into partnership with Him. See, He's already died for your sin choices. All those things that you've done, all those things that you've thought, the things that you're, the things, the actually, the things that you're going to do in the future, the things you're going to do this afternoon, those, thing, those thoughts that you're, you're going to have this afternoon or tomorrow or next week, he's already rescued you from it. The question, where are you, is a question of whether you will receive that invitation or not. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 through 13 says, if you declare with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We confess not only our contribution to the broken image, but that through Jesus, our broken image can be actually restored. That as the as the avalanche of our sin choices comes to crashing down on us, Jesus rescues us from the inevitable death that our sin choices will bring. He continues in verse 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never put, be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When Jesus, the night he was betrayed, the day, the day before his crucifixion, he took the bread and said, this, body, this bread is my body given for you. Take and eat. After they took the bread, Jesus took the wine and said, this, is, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus who saves us and invites us to be restored and transformed from the people that we were created to be. Let us receive the salvation that is only in Christ. Take and drink. Let me pray, and then we'll continue with one last worship song. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of 
this mountain of sin that we create in our lives, that you restore us, that you call out to us and say, where are you? That we can look to you, Jesus, to restore us, that we can look to you, Jesus, to save us. But God, you also invite us into a beautiful partnership. What a beautiful expression of your character to say, I just want to do life with you. And so, and Lord, admittedly, confession is a scary thing. So was life change. So was repentance. But we recognize that that's a very minor piece of this whole salvation puzzle. God, we thank you that you did, the, you did all the work. You bore our sins on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. That you were resurrected so that we would have new life in you, Jesus. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the gift of relationship. Pray this in your name.